Good morning. How's it going? All right. John said this is the end of This Is Us. It sounds like a bad breakup. This is the end of This Is Us. We've reached the end. Um, We're grateful you decided to join us this morning. What we're going to be talking about this morning kind of fits in the theme of that. What do we do when people don't change? What do we do when the relationship doesn't change, when it doesn't get better? How do we find hope? How do we move forward? And so we're going to continue on that theme this morning as we finish up the final week of This Is Us and the end of us. Sorry, again, it's not a bad breakup. We hope you come back next week. Just because you read relational principles, you study books, you go to marriage seminars, you go to relational seminars, you study all the the bestsellers, doesn't mean that you're automatically perfect at it, right? Like, that's just not reality. Just because we understand the information doesn't mean we can apply it any better. And so over the past seven weeks, we've actually given you more than 25 relational principles. We've covered more than 65 biblical verses, and we've talked about more than 15 books, Christian and non-Christian, and all that is overwhelming. And if you're like me, you can look back over the past seven weeks and be like, okay, maybe I'm a little bit better. Maybe I'm a little bit better. There's one thing that I grabbed onto. It helped me a little bit. But in reality, like, not all my relationships are perfect now, right? Like, it just isn't that easy, unfortunately. And a lot of times it's more frustrating than it is helpful. More frustrating than it is helpful. And the good thing is we even have a psychologist who writes some of these books that looks at his content and says, okay, that's impractical. Even the material that he writes, he says, okay, good luck. You're probably not going to do it most of the time. It's not going to work the way that we talk about it. The way all these principles are great, but they may not actually take traction. Dan Weil, he's a psychologist with a PhD at UC Berkeley, writes about relationships. And one thing that he talks about is I statements. Who here has heard of an I statement? Okay, yeah, you guys are very smart. I statement. I feel this when you did this. Or I perceived this when this happened. It's a way of owning our own experiences, our own emotions, without kind of displacing those things on the other person. And that lowers the defensiveness when you take ownership for your own feelings. And it's a very great statement. The problem is, Dan Weil tells us this. It is impossible to make I statements when you are in the hating my partner, wanting revenge, feeling stung, and needing to sting back state of mind. Anybody ever been there? Like... It's just impossible. He goes on. At such a moment, you cannot remember what an I statement is, and quite frankly, you do not care. (laughs) There's times in a relationship you know all the tools, and you just don't care. Like, you got to get back, and it's got to come out of you, and so we do something that maybe we regret. Same with active listening. Active listening is a great tool. I've recommended it to a lot of people. I try to do it. It's somebody shares something with you, friend, coworker, family member, spouse, And instead of responding to what they say, you take a moment, you slow down, you say, okay, what I heard you say was. And you kind of paraphrase back to them. And the goal is making sure that you have understood what they've laid out. And they get a chance to kind of correct if there's any misunderstanding. The reality is, statistically, that actually only happens 4.4% of the time in conflict. (laughs) Like, we're here to encourage you guys this morning. This stuff can seem impractical. The statistics aren't in your favor, and we go on. Another wonderfully uplifting statistic our friend John Gottman gives us. We've referenced him a number of times throughout this series. He states, a full 68% of all marital conflicts never go away. 
68%. If you're married and you've been married a while, you're like, yep, that's right. (laughs) If you're engaged, maybe you're reconsidering. I'm not sure. (laughs) 68% of conflicts never go away. And the reality is because less than a third of our problems, our conflicts, our differences have real solutions. Less than a third have real solutions. Most of them boil down to personality differences. Things that maybe won't change. Things that aren't going to shift monumentally over the course of our lives. Personality differences. My wife and I have been married a little over 11 years. And there's an argument that, not an argument, a tense conversation that we have. (laughs) That happens a number of Saturdays. And it's usually only on Saturdays, especially if it's a nice Saturday. If it's sunny outside, if it's a little bit warm. Yesterday was pretty close to a perfect Saturday. For me, anyway. And we've always been early risers. Wake up, you know, six o'clock or so, and we'll get our coffee and we'll have our cereal. And we'll sit there peacefully. You know, it's a little less peaceful with the three-year-old now. But before then, it was very peaceful. Now it's a little less. But at seven o'clock, invariably, what would happen is my mind would start going. I'd look outside and be like, wow, this is a nice day. You know what I could do? I could mow the lawn. I could clean the shed. I could clean the house. I could work in the garden. I can go to a coffee shop, I can grab lunch, and then what are we going to do in the afternoon? We should do this. And my mind starts piecing together kind of the puzzle of my day. It's putting it all together. And then I start looking, okay, well, what is the most efficient manner to do this in? That way I get the shower in after all the outside work, so I'm ready to do all the other things. And what's the timeline? I could probably get this done by 9. I could get that done by 10. That way at 11 o'clock I'm ready to go to coffee. And I'm putting all this together. The good thing is, is after 11 years, I've realized that marriage is not a dictatorship. And there's a little voice that happens in the back of my head and says, oh, you should probably ask her if she has any plans. (laughs) And what I've learned over the years is that while this is all happening in my head, my wife is sitting there enjoying her coffee going, this is a nice Saturday. (laughs) It's a real nice Saturday. I like my coffee. Maybe later I'll do a run. Maybe after that I'll, maybe we'll go do grocery shopping or something. And I look at her and I say, after I've built up the courage, I kind of know how how it goes. So I start in soft. So so what do you think about today? What like what are your what are your plans? She goes, oh you know, just just enjoying the coffee. I'll probably go for a run like I do every Saturday. And I say, okay. Do you think that's like at 8 o'clock? <laughs> or are you thinking more like the 9 o'clock time frame today? I don't know. We'll see when we get there. I'm like, okay, well, what, what, what do you want to do after that? Well, the usual. Well, like, what, what is the usual here? How can we piece this together? And, and all of a sudden, husbands, if you've ever been in this place, you cross this imaginary line. And all of a sudden, there's like an atmospheric change in the house. It's been sunny all morning, and all of a sudden, like, the clouds come in. You're looking over your shoulder like, I don't feel safe anymore. (laughs) You can cross that imaginary line going forward, but you can never cross it going backwards. Like, you're just never back in that safe space again. And so after a few questions, and she's got a lot of patience, she looks at me and goes, you are stressing me out. (laughs) Eleven years. She's basically reached sainthood at this point. But the reality is, is that we've learned how to kind of do this dance where we've gotten a little bit better along the way. And that's what John Gottman says, is even though 68% of our conflicts never go away, how we dialogue about them, 
how we talk about them, how we react to one another, can still allow us to be happy, to find satisfaction, to make a relational difference. And so Timothy Keller and John Gottman both have similar statistics, and it goes something like this. Two-thirds of unhappy relationships will become happy within five years if the people in the relationship remain dedicated and invested. Two-thirds, more than two-thirds of all relationships that are unhappy now will become happy again within five years if they remain dedicated and invested. What they're telling us is don't give up too soon. Find hope. Dig into hope and get through. Build some positive momentum. Find somebody to come in, give you some guidance to to apply kind of all the tools and techniques we've talked about over the past seven weeks. Build positive momentum. But ultimately, stay in there. Find hope. This morning, we want to talk about hope. Where is our source of hope? And so we've been digging through Romans 12 for a number of weeks, and there's a lot of relational principles in there, a lot of stuff. We go from blessing those who persecute you, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, don't consider other people less than yourself, on and on it goes. And then all of a sudden, Paul comes to this verse, these two verses actually, that in my mind seemed out of place, and they grabbed my attention. So I want to read them this morning. Romans 12, verses 11 through 12. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. I found it odd at first that hope and suffering were in the same sentence. Hope and suffering in the same sentence. Just because things don't go right or things are going poorly now doesn't mean there isn't hope to latch on to. And so this morning we have to ask, rejoice in hope. What hope is there? What hope are you holding on to? What is the purpose and the promise that is getting you through from day to day? I sent out a video clip this week, uh, if you're on the text service, about Deja and Randall in this show, This Is Us, season two. Deja comes in and Randall fosters her. She's got a very rough upbringing. She's come from a broken home, a single mother. Her grandmother, who helped support them, has passed away. She's never had a stable, healthy male role model in her life. She's gone through periods where there isn't electricity, there isn't gas, there isn't food. And she gets put in foster care, and Randall takes her in. And Randall is this guy that's got it all together. Like, he's got all the money, he's got all the cars, he's got a beautiful house, he's got kind of the postcard picture family. Everything is running great. He's got things that Deja could never imagine. And Deja walks into this relationship. She gets to experience all the glory of that relationship, how awesome it is. And it's completely new and different for her. And Randall decides to kind of take her on as a savior project. Like, I'm going to get this girl out of struggle. We're going to make her life so much better. But in order to do that, we got to give her a picture to hold on to. He says, Deja, you've got a lot of obstacles in your life, a lot of challenges. And in that clip I sent out, he says this. Remember what I told you about working hard. This is in his last words to Deja as she's getting ready to go back with her mother. He says, remember what I told you about working hard. And she responds to him, yep, I do. Big house, fancy car. That is the goal that he has instilled over and over again. It kind of got under my skin after he said it the fourth time. It's like that is the goal of what she is driving towards, why she is to work, why she has changed her life so that she can end up like Randall, have a big house and a fancy car. This morning... 
I want to ask you what your purpose and your promise are. If after seven weeks, your purpose of all this relational content is just to have a comfortable house, a healthier relationship, the absence of conflict, you're going to miss out on something greater. You're going to miss out on something greater. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but when I walk into a room, and I've gotten a little bit better about this, but when I walk into a room and someone's crying, my first thought isn't, oh my God, what happened? My first thought is, oh my God, how can I get them to stop? I feel uncomfortable. I'm just being real. My wife, I walk in and I go, oh God, how can I make this stop? Because it makes me feel uncomfortable. I've gotten a little bit better, a little bit better. But if you're following along, if you're in trying to implement all these relational principles just for the goal of making things feel more comfortable, you're going to miss out on something much greater. Leslie Vernick writes a book, and she titles it this, How to Act Right When Your Spouse Acts Wrong. How to Act Right When Your Spouse Acts Wrong. The first uh, service got quite a laugh out of that, and I assume they were going out to purchase the book after the service. It is a good book. It's got some great reminders in there of what God wants to do in our lives, even when the relationship doesn't change. And so I want to read to you kind of her synopsis of what the purpose and the promises that stands out in front of us. It says, although you may not see the desired change in the other person, two things need to stay in your focus. First, remember who your enemy is. When we get into a fight, when we get into an argument, when we have a disagreement, nine times out of ten, what I see is not an issue. I see a person that I need to overcome. I see somebody that I need to win. Almost 60% of all arguments in a marriage continue even when spouses don't remember what started the fight because they just see, I've got to win. I need to keep this thing going because they will not have the last word. I've got to win. And so Leslie reminds us, who is the enemy? So it is not your friend, your coworker, your family member. It is not your spouse. We do good, and this is what she writes, we do good in order that we, not in order to get our spouse to do change, we do not do good in order to get our spouse to change. We do good so that we are not overcome by evil. We do good so that we are not overcome by evil. That's fundamentally different. Fundamentally different. Something changing within us. And then the second thing, it says you need to focus on the fact that it is God's will that we be transformed into the image of Christ. That we be transformed into the image of Christ. So this morning I want to read Romans 5, 1 through 5. Number of chapters before Romans 12. But this sets up our hope, the purpose and promise that God gives to us as we pursue him. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. We boast in the hope of our sharing in the glory of God. And not only that, but we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. It's an amazing passage. We boast in our hope of sharing in the glory of God. Sharing in the glory of God. This morning, your purpose and your promise, 
according to Romans 5, is to share in God's glory. To share in God's glory. Something amazing. Last week we spoke of God's acceptance of us, his irrational and reckless love. It accepts us where we are, opens his arms and says, come in. I love you. No matter what you've done or where you've been, come to me. I will receive you and I will love you. You are accepted here. And in our response to God's love, he extends something amazing. He extends his glory to us. Glory is a weird word, right? Like we don't use that on everyday occasion. It's just not something we typically do. When I speak of glory, when Paul speaks of glory or Jesus' glorification specifically, what he's referring to is Jesus' victory over evil. The glory of God is Jesus' victory over evil. See, Jesus doesn't just demonstrate his love to us and then say, okay, good luck. I did it really good. Let's see how you did. That's not what he does. He doesn't just set it up there and say, okay, do your best to do this. He reinforces this love with a victory over everything that stands in the way of love. Through the resurrection, Jesus reinforces his love with a victory over everything that stands in the way of love. His expression of love is given in his death. He opens his arms and he says, come to me. I love you. I accept you where you are for who you are, who I've created you to be. Come into relationship with me. And his power to overcome evil is seen in his resurrection. It's seen in his resurrection. Jesus, who dies, takes on the full weight of evil. All this evil is poured out upon an innocent man who dies. And instead of retaliating with evil, instead of retaliating with hatred, division, he says, okay, selflessly, I give myself as an expression of love to you. And what he does in his resurrection is demonstrate that good has won out over evil. And when we respond to that expression of love, we get to participate in that victory. We get to experience the glory of what he's accomplished in overcoming evil with good. It's kind of like Deja coming into Randall's home. She's got this horrible background, baggage, challenges, and she comes into this perfect environment and she doesn't know how to live. She doesn't know how to grow in it. And all of a sudden, Randall's kind of given her a taste of all the glory that could be there. Although misdirected, she gets to taste the full benefits of everything that Randall has done. And that is what Jesus has held out to us. As we respond to him, he's saying, there is something that you need to taste, something you need to get a, a desire for, and that is the glory of God to overcome evil. We get glimpses of this glory. We get glimpses of it. Things aren't as they're supposed to be here and now. I mean, we had another shooting yesterday. We had a shooting last week. This world is not what it's supposed to be. Things are not the way they are intended to be. Our relationships are torn apart. They're pulled apart. But what God is saying in Scripture is that there is coming a day when all this will be set right, when everything will be restored to what it's been created for, and redemption, glory will be felt. And we get glimpses of this glory when we see our growth in the character of God and our reliance on our spirit. On his spirit. We get glimpses of glory when we see our growth in the character of God and our reliance on his spirit. And these two give us hope for two main reasons. Growing in the character of God confirms our relationship with God. 
confirms our relationship with God. And reliance on the Spirit of God confirms our restoration in God, confirms our restoration, our relationship and our restoration. 1 John 2, 5 through 6 reads this. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in relationship with him. This is how we know we are in relationship with him. Whoever claims to live in relationship with him ought to live just as Jesus lived. This is what we've been talking about the past seven weeks. Love has no power if it's not active, if it's not evident, if it's not doing something. The way we live matters. Our character matters. And what God is saying, what Jesus is saying, is when you grow into the character likeness of Christ, living as Jesus lived, we get a glimpse of glory because we ultimately see what God wants to do in our lives in restoring who we are. It's talking about character producing hope in Romans 5. But character and endurance are paired together. And this is frustrating for me. Character and endurance are paired together because I'd like to just try out character I'd like to just try out faith and try out uh, kind of all the principles that are in Scripture, try out the relational principles, you know, read a book and say, okay, tomorrow I'm going to try this, and if it doesn't work, I'm going to walk away. And I feel like that's how I approach a lot of things. I'd give them a try mentality. Okay, I'm going to try that, and if it doesn't work, I'm clear. But Paul says endurance produces character, and character produces hope. He mentions endurance because it is a slow-growing process. It is more training than it is trying. It's more training than it is trying. Endurance produces character because it is over the long haul that we see moments of growth. We get glimpses of glory along the journey as we say, okay, I've made a little bit of progress here. Made a little bit of progress here. See, we often want the extraordinary, right? Like we want these monumental moments that just change everything, lightning from heaven. Your spouse walks in, all their anger is gone, all the problems are gone. And that's what we pray for. We want God to deliver people immediately, and he does do that. But Paul also says there's an element of endurance and character building that needs to take place that's going to be slow and incremental. It's not necessarily done in monumental shifts. But every step, every small area of growth is meaningful. It may not be monumental, but it is meaningful. And this takes shape within us because we are being restored by the love of God that is poured out through the Spirit of God. Our reliance on the Spirit of God confirms our restoration in God. Confirms our restoration in God. The Spirit of God is another unusual term that maybe we don't use on an everyday basis. What Paul is talking about and what the Bible talks about is really the breath of life, this inhale and exhale of life that gives us meaning, gives us purpose. In creation, God is said to breathe life, his wind, his breath into humanity, and they come to life. His breath animates us gives us movement. It gives us purpose. It gives man the, the ability to reason, to choose, to will something. It is a connection, the soul, the spirit, between body and soul. Ultimately, it is the image of God that's been planted within each of us. It's the image of God that's been planted in each of us, the divine spark, if you will. As such, we're intended to carry and reflect the image of God. You were meant for so much. But so many things get in the way of that image. And what the Spirit of God is saying is as we rely on him, all of a sudden those things will start falling away and that image within us becomes restored, becomes renewed. 
It becomes the way it was intended to be. And all of a sudden, life starts fitting better. The Spirit of God in the letters of Paul often refer to the means by which we are transformed. It renews us and grants us freedom from the past. Grants us freedom from the past. And ultimately, allows us to overcome evil. Allows us to overcome evil. This is possible because of Jesus' resurrection, his victory over death and evil. Sharing in his glory means ultimate victory of good over evil, which is our ultimate restoration. Our ultimate restoration. Jürgen Moltmann, he's a German theologian, summarizes it this way. In practical terms, this means that transformation in Jesus and reliance on the Spirit act together in order to lead people into complete freedom and restoration. Are you waiting this morning for a time of freedom and restoration? This is what Paul is talking about. As we offer ourselves to God and we become transformed, as we grow in the character of God and rely more on the Spirit, we get glimpses of ultimate freedom and restoration. I want to read to you a picture of what this ultimate restoration looks like out of the book of Revelation. The author John has written to a community late first century, 95 or so AD to 110 AD, and he's writing to a group of people that's just distraught, broken down, suffering, and they're looking for hope. John has this encounter with God, and God reveals this amazing purpose, this plan that he has for creation. He says, John writes this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, again, the throne is symbolic of victory, of winning. Loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. At that time, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. The old order is gone. He who was seated on the throne, speaking of Jesus, said, I am making everything new. I'm making everything new. This amazing picture of newness, of restoration. And so Romans 12, I believe, has two keys to helping us maintain endurance as we pursue his purpose and promise. Romans 12, 12, again, reads, Rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer. And I believe two things that we have to lock into are rejoice and pray. First, we need to rejoice. But we need to know what to rejoice in. Transformation and reflecting the character of God, getting glimpses of glory, getting glimpses of restoration are slow and oftentimes painful processes. We wish they were quick, but they are slow. So we need to keep our eyes out for the slow moments, the slow growth areas where we are slowly making progress. I used to struggle with anger. I had a rough childhood that I didn't really care for, and I could say, being married, maybe my anger response has gone from like delayed two minutes, you know, the first year of marriage, to like seven minutes now. It's not monumental. Like me being able to hold my tongue has grown little by little over 10 years, 11 years, little by little. But you know what? Joanne looks at that and says, there's growth. There's progress. God is renewing me. And that gives me hope, those little things. Oftentimes what we want in our relationship are monumental shifts. For somebody to walk into the room and all of a sudden be different 
And I want to ask you this morning, are you missing the meaningful moments because you're waiting for the monumental ones? Are you missing the meaningful moments in your relationship because you're looking for monumental ones? These meaningful shifts, these meaningful moments are glimpses of glory of what God wants to do in you and your relationship. And oftentimes we pass them over because we feel, or at least I do, that if I acknowledge that my spouse has made a little bit of progress and they've gotten a little bit better, that all of a sudden they're going to look and say, okay, I arrived. I don't have to try anymore. Like, I'm good. They're happy with where I stand. Or I'll make that comment and be like, ah, you've come so far. This is where you used to be and this is where you are now. And they'll say, okay, well, I've come too far. I'll step back a few. You know, like that's our fear is that we'll compliment somebody even though they haven't arrived at where they're going and all of a sudden they'll undo everything that they've done. We're fearful of acknowledging and rejoicing over those moments of growth or those moments of healing, over those glimpses of glory for fear that the other person's going to take them back from us. And what Paul says is we need to rejoice in those because they are glimpses of our restoration and relationship with God that point to a greater hope. When we don't mention those, what we're inadvertently communicating is we don't respect and appreciate the effort that they're putting into the relationship. And when respect and effort are gone out of the equation, there is no motivation to move forward. So recognizing and rejoicing in the meaningful moments. The other reason why these are so powerful and meaningful is, I believe, a prayer that many church people know. It's said all over the world. Matthew 6, Jesus' prayer. He's teaching his disciples to pray. And he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we grow in our character, as we begin to reflect the image of God, the character of Christ, we begin to see glimpses of glory. We begin to do his will here on earth, as Leslie Murray said, so that we are not overcome with evil. And what this means is when we're walking in that will of God, all of a sudden, your will on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven and earth intersect in a powerful way when we're walking in the will of God, when we are doing the things that God has called us to, when we are seeing and experiencing these glimpses of glory. Heaven and earth intersect, and all of a sudden, God's presence is right there. And that is powerful for bringing healing, restoration, and unity. That is powerful. Provides amazing hope. So we need to slow down and take note of these moments, the meaningful ones. We need to look and say, that's a God moment. God is doing something there. As small as it may seem, God is doing something. And secondly, we need to pray. Prayer is the key to perseverance because it is the one act that consistently displays our dependence on God. Prayer is the one act that constantly displays our dependence on God. When we rely on God, when we constantly turn to him, no matter what the situation, no matter what the issue, What we're communicating is, God, help me to rely on your spirit. And God, in that moment, promises restoration to see us through, to overcome evil with good. The prayer is for us to recognize these moments of glory, to be transformed, for the other person to be transformed, for God's will to be done on this earth, even when we don't know what to pray. Paul says in Romans 6 that the Spirit is given to us 
So that even when we don't know what to pray, when the pain, the disappointment, the frustration is so overwhelming and we don't know what to pray, the Spirit of God himself living inside of us intercedes on our behalf, lifting up prayers, encouraging us, supporting us, strengthening us. And what happens, even if all we can utter out is, God, help me, is that God's Spirit begins to move and something new takes place. Restoration begins to happen and his promise is experienced in small glimpses. I want to read a prayer to you in conclusion this morning. It's on the back of the bulletin on the group's guide. It's beyond the screen. Um, I want to encourage you to take it, to pray on it. And when you see God moments, to rejoice. So much of the, the first half of this prayer is this cadence, let me bring love, let me bring pardon, let me bring union. Let's submit for your consideration that these are God moments. When you or somebody in your life are doing these things, so much of what Romans 12 talks about right here in this prayer, when you see these things, when you see love instead of hatred, when you see pardon instead of offense, those are God moments. Those are glimpses of glory that God wants you to share in because they foretell a promise of future restoration. So I'm going to read them to you this morning. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is offense, let me bring pardon. Where there is discord, let me bring union. Where there is error, let me bring truth. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring your light. Where there is sadness, let me bring your joy. O Lord, let me not seek as much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that one receives, it is in self-forgetting that one finds, it is in pardoning that one is pardoned, it is in dying that one is raised to new or eternal life, it is in dying that one is raised to this promise of eternal life. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that you have extended to us your grace and your goodness, your reckless love that accepts us for who we are and where we are. Lord, and because of our response to you, because of your great love, we get to share in your glory. And your glory, Father, is seen in moments of restoration, in moments of healing, in moments of unity, in moments of peace, in moments of love. Help us to see you working in our lives and our relationships. And when we get a glimpse of this glory, of small areas of growth, that we might be able to rejoice and pray, Father, for that future restoration. We thank you for that this morning. In your name, amen.